This morning we'll be looking at 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 to 24. And you can find that on page 551 in the Pew Bible in the seat ahead of you. And as we come into chapter 15, we look at two kings, Abijah and Asa. And these will be the last two kings of Judah that we encounter until we get to the very last chapter of 1 Kings. And between now and then, we'll have a few kings of Israel, but we'll focus a lot on the uh, very exciting narratives with Elijah and Elisha. So we come here to really the last part of the kings of Judah that we'll deal with in this first book of Kings. And before we read from 1 Kings 15, 1 to 24, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word says that all Scripture is God-breathed that it is Spirit-inspired, and that you have made it useful. And you promise that your Word does not go out and return void, and so we trust in your promises and in your Word. We pray that this Word would not go out and return void, but that it would capture our hearts and lead us in true worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 15, starting in the first verse. In the eighteenth year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father, his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. As for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam, and Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Asa his son succeeded him as king. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem forty-one years. His grandmother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. He even deposed his grandmother Maacah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut the pole down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tamraman, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now 
break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel, Beth Maacah, and all Kinnereth in addition to Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew to Tirzah. Then King Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt. And they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baasha had been using there. With them, King Asa built up Geba and Benjamin and also Mizpah. As for all the other events of Asa's reign, all his achievements, all he did and the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of his father David. And Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. When we pick up the story here in chapter 15, things are not going very well in Judah. We can remember that at the very end, the second half of Solomon's reign, he had stopped having a heart that was wholly devoted to the Lord, and instead he had gone after other idols through the instigation of all his foreign pagan idolatrous wives. And then Solomon had son, Solomon's son had done the same thing, and now Solomon's grandson does the same thing as well. If you were a faithful citizen of God's kingdom, living in the land of Judah has not been a very good 50 years for you. And so here comes this next king, Abijah, the great-grandson of David and the grandson of Solomon. And Abijah, like his father and his grandfather before him, is a syncretist. A syncretist is quite simply someone who melds two faiths together. So for example, if you were to worship the Lord here on Sunday and then go to the mosque for prayer on Friday, you would be a syncretist, bringing two different faiths together at the same time. So you might say that Abijah is hedging his bets. He's hedging his theological bets. Well, if these gods are the true gods, I'll go with them. If the Lord is the true God, I'll go with them. Maybe they're all true gods. Whatever they are, they're going to be happy with me here. But James wouldn't call him a, a hedger of bets. James would call him, in James chapter 1, a double-minded man. And so Abijah comes to be the, the king, and now what will the Lord do? Right? The people of Judah, they didn't play baseball. That was their loss. They didn't play baseball. But here you have three idolatrous kings, one, two, three. And, and isn't it, you know, three strikes, you're out. Is the Lord just going to sweep Judah away into the dustbin of history, maybe start over with a different people? After all, there was nothing special about the Israelites that he should choose them. In fact, the Lord called them because there wasn't anything special about them. Well, the Lord isn't going to do that. He's not going to do it, not because Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah didn't deserve it. They did. He's, he's not going to do it because their, their kingdom was so faithful. It wasn't. The Lord isn't going to sweep Judah away because of David. Because the Lord loved David. And this makes perfect sense. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and really the book of Kings is largely a commentary on the promise that God gives to David in 2 Samuel 7. We can recall these words the Lord had given to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's because of the Lord's promise to David 
that he preserves David's dynasty. It's because the Lord had loved David and chosen David that now he continues his patience with the kingdom of Judah. Donald Wiseman, I, I think, says it best here when he says this is an example of God blessing the unworthy for the sake of the worthy. We know a thing or two about that, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. But before we come too far in, in declaring David to be the ideal king, the author of kings, brings up to mind just one exception to David's goodness. He says, David loved the Lord with all of his heart. David was faithful to the Lord. David was humble to the Lord. But he wasn't those things to perfection. Because there was just this little thing where David committed adultery and, oh, by the way, murdered a man. It recalls to mind that though David was just in God's sight because of his grace, he was not perfect. But God is perfect. David wasn't fully faithful, but God is fully faithful. This story isn't so much about David's goodness as it is about God's grace. And so you have these, these faithful worshipers of the Lord, but they're living in this land where three straight kings have been idolatrous, and they must be wondering when when, when is the Lord going to keep His promise to David? When are we again going to see a true son of David on the throne? When will there finally be a king who loves the Lord just as we do? I mean, can you just feel the frustration in these people as they worship the God who's supposed to be the God of this kingdom, but their own kings don't worship this God? Well, then after just Three, straight, three short years, Abijah dies. And his son is to become king. But it appears that his son is quite young. Because instead of coming right to the throne himself, it seems as though Asa has a time before he becomes king when his grandmother rules. She becomes the queen mother. We can call this a regency when someone isn't ready to become king yet. Someone else sits on the throne and kind of keeps the seat warm until they're ready. And this grandmother doesn't care for the Lord anything more than Abijah had or anything more than Rehoboam had. She too is, is an idolater. And so now you have four people in a row who have sat on the throne of Judah who have not loved the Lord. And, and the people must be even getting more exasperated. Not just one, not just two, not just three, but four. You, you can imagine the scars on their hearts as for most of them, the entire living memory of their existence has been spent with an idolater on David's throne. This is a scarred people. But then Asa becomes king. It says that he deposed his grandmother, which means she probably didn't leave the throne altogether willingly. And Asa becomes king. Now what will this king be like? Well, this king loves the Lord. And not only does this king offer a balm for the scarred hearts of these people, but this king immediately declares war on idolatry. He goes out and he gets rid of all the filthy idolatrous practices. 
he starts chopping down the idols. He even gets rid of grandma, and then he takes her idol, he chops it down, he hauls it out into the Kidron Valley, which is Jerusalem's dump, and there he burns the idol, which she had loved, in the dump. He is ruthless to idolatry. No matter what it was, no matter who it was, if it was idolatrous, it's going to go. And you can imagine, Asa made lots of enemies here. Because there were plenty of customers to keep those shrine prostitutes in business. And when he hangs the going out of business sign on there, many of them would have been very upset with him, but Asa doesn't care. He does the hard things and deals with the consequences in order to do the right thing. That's good leadership. And Asa exercises good leadership over God's people. And can you just imagine the relief for the true worshipers of God as finally, finally a king who loves the covenant Lord sits on David's throne. And not just someone who loves personally, but someone who's willing to do something about it. Someone who's willing to get rid of anyone or anything that stands in the way of God's people truly worshiping God. Asa is a good example of being ruthless against idolatry. And it's a good example to us of being ruthless against our idolatry that we should be ready and willing to get rid of anything that would lead us into idolatry, no matter what it is, no matter who it is. Uh, even if it's a family member, if there is a family member who leads us into idolatry, whose influence we are not able to resist as they lead us into sin, we should confront them, and if they will not stop, we should cut them out. Now that seems harsh, doesn't it? I mean, after all, family. But what does Jesus say? Whoever is not willing to leave father or mother, brother or my sis or sister is not worthy of me. Jesus sees following him, sees faithfulness as radical obedience. And if someone will take you away from following him, they should be cut off until they are able to come back in faithfulness to you. Asa cut off grandma. Can you imagine that? Your own grandmother deposed and cast out of the palace because she wouldn't stop worshiping idols. And Asa isn't criticized for kicking grandma out. Asa is commended for kicking grandma out. We should be ruthless against anything that leads us into idolatry. Jobs, phones, friends, savings accounts, it doesn't matter what it is. If it leads us into sin, it has to go. And so it was with Asa. And the words of verse 14 say this, although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Asa wasn't perfect. He should have gotten rid of the high places. We're going to see an example of Asa's imperfections in just uh, a verse here. He wasn't perfect, but he was good. By God's grace, he was good. 
I think many of us, when we look in the mirror, can see someone who's not perfect, but by God's grace is good. And so the same grace given to Asa is given to us, but even in greater measure. But then we see that Asa finds himself in a bind. He's in a bind because he's at war with Baasha. We haven't been introduced to Baasha yet. The, the Lord is in his word here, continuing to focus on the kings of Judah. Asa reigns for 41 years. That's a long time. And so Asa's reign actually overlaps with four different kings of Israel. So we'll come to Baasha next week or the week after, Lord willing. But Asa is at war with Baasha, who's the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And things aren't going so well for Asa. And that makes perfect sense because Baasha was king over ten tribes and Asa was king over just like one and a half. And so Baasha has come down and he, he's put Asa in a bit of a, of a problem, a bit of a pickle, because he begins building up Ramah. Now what's the big deal with that? Well, there, there's two things that are a big deal with that. First, Ramah is only five miles from Jerusalem. As a point of reference, the, the corner of Hart Street and Route 30 down in Dyer, just across the border, that's exactly five miles from this place. That's just a morning's walk. It, it doesn't say much for your security if your enemy is able to put forces just a morning's walk away from your capital city. And so here where Asa lives, where the palace is, where the temple is, where the center of government for Judah is, is just a, a few hits of the driver away from danger. But it's more than just that. Ramah is on the major road that goes north and south out of Jerusalem. And just like our nation and like all nations do, uh, the nation of Judah depended on trade for its wealth. And so here, Baasha has built this city and stationed these troops on the busiest road bringing trade into and out of Jerusalem and into and out of Judah. So Baasha has just taken his hands and he's wrapped them around the neck of Judah and begins to squeeze until finally they'll just starve for lack of trade. So Asa finds this kingdom in rough shape militarily, economically, in nearly every, every way. So what's he going to do about it? And you can imagine, going back to the trade thing, you can imagine maybe a a modern reference. If someone was to come and block off interstates 80, 90, and 94 from going east from here, things would slow down. And so that's effectively what Baasha has done. So what, what is Asa going to do about it? Is he going to pray? Is he going to call the prophet to give him a word from the Lord? No, instead he gets clever. He gets clever and he gets up all the gold out of the Lord's house, all the gold and silver out of his own house, all of the things that Rehoboam had made, anything left over from Solomon's day, gets it all together and he ships it off as a bribe to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, whose country was on the opposite end uh, from him of the northern kingdom. And he says, here, take all of this stuff break your treaty with my enemy and attack him from the opposite direction so that he'll leave me alone. And so Ben-Hadad takes all the wealth. He agrees to do what 
Asa had asked him to do. He brings his army from the north. Baasha hears about it. He has to pack up his tents, take all of his people, and leave in a hurry lest his whole entire kingdom be taken away before he recognizes it. And he leaves in such a hurry that he leaves everything he'd been working on right behind. So Asa says, all right, every guy in the whole country of Judah has to get up here. We're going to go take all this stuff and bring it back. So it seems like it was a win-win. <clears throat> Ben-Hadad gets a few cities, gets a whole bunch of gold. Asa gets freedom from Baashan, his attacks. And more than that, he even gets all the building materials so he can build up his own cities. It, it seems like a, a clever win on his part, but the Lord didn't think it was clever. The Lord didn't think it was clever because he didn't even ask the Lord about it. Instead of trusting the Lord, who is the king, the true king of Israel, he goes off and asks a pagan king for help. A pagan king who worships idols, just like his grandmother had done, who he kicked off the throne. And so the Lord is not very pleased with this, and if we hop over to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, we'll see what the Lord has to say about this. 2 Chronicles 16, starting in verse 7, says, At that time... Hanani, the seer, <coughs> came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. For from now on, you will have wars. He didn't trust God. He didn't trust that the same God who had answered his prayer so many times in the past would answer them this time. He acted in the ways of the world, not according to the wisdom of God. And so he receives God's punishment. And we read at the very end of this account back in 1 Kings, we read this simple statement. In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. This is a kind of disease that begins to creep and would ultimately lead to his death. We go back again to 2 Chronicles 16, and we see why his feet had become diseased. 2 Chronicles 16, 10, and 12. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Instead of repenting when the prophet comes like David, his father, had done, he gets upset and he throws the prophet into prison. And he's so upset he begins oppressing other people because he's in this rage that somehow he would have all of his, all of his reign be smirched by this big mistake. And rather than humbling himself before God, he continues in his pride and his pride leaves to, leads to one thing after another. But even though the prophet gets thrown in prison, the Lord is with the prophet and not with the king. The prophet preached the hard message and dealt with the consequences. But God was with him. There's comfort for the humble, bold preacher in there as well. 
But that's not the best way to end, is it? That's not the best way to end. Asa started strong, but he didn't end nearly as strong. Yet still we should hear the words again of verse 14. That Asa was committed to the Lord all the days of his life. He messed up big time. And he still was committed to the Lord. And he still belonged to the Lord. On the surface, this looks like dry, dusty history from a rather insignificant nation from about 3,000 years ago. But as we've seen time and time again, Kings is extremely relevant for us today, lends itself very easily to application. I find finding application out of books like Kings to be much easier than finding application out of a lot of other kinds of books in the Scripture. So what lessons might we mine out of the book of Kings in 1 Kings 15? We've already talked about the need to deal ruthlessly with the idols and the causes of idolatry in our lives, but what else? Well, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Rehoboam out under the pavilion on a sweaty day. We were talking about the importance of starting well. Talking about the importance of starting well by marrying well. That how you begin a marriage has a lot of impact on how your marriage will go and how it ends. And we looked at the front end. But the author of Kings looks oftentimes at the back end as well. We can remember back to Solomon. Solomon started so well. He had the temple built. He had the palace built. He was full of wisdom. He, he dedicates the temple. He prays. The Lord's glory cloud comes in. The Lord makes a, a covenant with him. That's a, about as strong a start as you could ever hope for. And you get to the midpoint of his reign. Everything has gone well. He gets a high progress report grade. But then the, la- the last 20 years of his reign, he stops showing up for class. By the time it's over, he's failed the class. Now we see another example. Though Asa belongs to the Lord his whole life, whereas it seems that Solomon didn't, yet Asa starts very strong, getting rid of grandma, chopping down her idol, burning it in the dump. But it doesn't end so well. He throws the prophet in prison, begins oppressing his people. It's good for us to take stock. It's good for us to take stock of where we are. It's good for us to consider what it is that we have done in our lives, because it's Sometimes it's easy to start well and more difficult to end well. We start with vim and vigor. I'm going to make a difference in the world. And I'm going to be different from the world. I'm going to enthusiastically serve the Lord. I can't wait for more opportunities to do new things. And we we start off with with high intentions, with, with noble aims. By the time we reach maybe the middle of our lives, the realities of life have set in. The, the vigor is gone, and now we, we spend our time focused just almost exclusively on the day-to-day things. We might go through the routines of being in the right place at the right time, but our real zeal for the Lord has evaporated. We start strong, but then we, like Asa, begin using the wisdom of the world as we age. And as we enter into our middle years or into our golden years, it seems as though we're just going through the motions. That's a pattern repeated all over again, whether it be in the pages of Scripture or in our own lives. 
But there's still time. There's still time to change. Uh, back a few months, we were looking at Solomon and his progress report. We took stock of our own lives. How have we done so far? Maybe we're doing excellently in the faith. We are full of zeal. We are serving God. We have a high grade. Maybe we have a mid-grade. We, we do love God, but there's certainly room for growth, room for, for more love for God, room for more appreciation of His grace, room for more service. Or, or maybe we're failing. Maybe we're not sure if we've ever loved the Lord. Maybe our life is a total mess and it seems like we've made every mistake we possibly can. There's still time to end well. There's still time to end well. To turn the life around. To hit the knees. To ask the Lord for grace. To commit yourself to God. To ask forgiveness from God and anyone you may have harmed. To confess your sins. And to be forgiven. To commit yourself to living a life that brings glory to God and to follow Jesus. There are a few examples in the scriptures of people who started out with F's by progress report time and they graduated with straight A's. We might think of Zacchaeus, or Mary Magdalene, or the apostles Matthew or Paul. There's time to change a life. There's time to end well. And the author of Kings thinks it's so important to encourage us to end well that he mentions it not just once, but at least twice. So take a lesson and a warning from Solomon and Asa. And if you look like either of them, take the opportunity to turn back to God in eager obedience. But the real heart and soul of the passage, I think, is found in this. That sin is stubborn. Isn't sin stubborn? And you see that it, it's grossly stubborn. And it's stubborn in Judah. Crops up in David's life, and then he kind of bashes it back down. Then it really flowers in Solomon's life, continues in Rehoboam and Abijah. And even down to Asa. Even Asa, the good king, isn't free from sin. Sin is stubborn. It's a stubborn menace. We know a thing or two about that as well, don't we? Sin is stubborn in our lives. There's that temptation that we, we hate, but it keeps calling us. There's the addiction that just beckons to us again and again and again. There's the temper that we have tried to tame and it flares up. There's the idolatry we just can't seem to leave behind. Maybe we just have a hard time getting off our backside and getting out to live the Christian life like we heard last Sunday morning and evening from our preachers. Sin is stubborn in our lives. There's grace for that. There's grace even for stubborn sinners. 
And there's grace for that, not that we might continue in that sin, but there's grace to forgive even stubborn sins. Paul says this, lest we think we can go on sinning. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But there is grace for stubborn sin. God continued to be gracious to Judah. Not because they were so good. But God was gracious to Judah because he loved their king. And God is gracious to us because he loves our king. And our king is the greatest king. Our king is David's greatest son. Our king sits on his throne, not in Jerusalem, but sits on heaven's throne. Our king is not God's son in an earthly sense. Our king is God's son in an eternal sense. God loves our king. And just as God had treated the people of Judah, who were unworthy in a blessed way because of the worthy, so too God treats us better than we deserve because we belong to the one who deserves everything. And so there is grace for stubborn sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's grace is more stubborn and more deeply rooted than even the most stubborn and deeply rooted of your ugly, nasty sins. Do you believe it? You ought to believe it. Because God's Word says it's true, and the resurrection tells us that it is true. Jesus, throughout His life, is subject to the effects of sin, though He is not Himself sinful. He experiences temptation. He experiences weakness and hunger, and thirst, and he experiences even death. He experiences the full experience of sin outside of himself, and blessedly for us, not inside of himself. But then, Jesus comes out of the grave in the resurrection with a perfect body. Sin has no more effect on him, nor will it ever have any effect on him. He comes out of the grave no more weakness, no more hunger, no more temptation, and no more death. And we, because we belong to Christ, one day come out of the grave. No more temptation, no more weakness, no more sin. That stubborn sin that just won't die. Even though you just want to bludgeon it to death until it won't raise its ugly, nasty head again, that sin goes into the grave and it stays there. And when you come out, you are free. Sin stays stubborn for this life, but God's grace endures for the next. David wasn't perfect. Asa wasn't perfect. They're still waiting for the great king. The king who forgives all sin. And he's coming. 
But when we come to 1 Kings 15, he's not here yet. So the quest for the king continues. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that your grace, your grace, as the commentator Ralph Davis says, is not only greater but more stubborn than our sins. When we, con- when we contemplate the deepest of our sins, the most deeply rooted, the most stubborn, ugly, nasty of our sins, when we consider that grace is greater, that grace is more stubborn, what can we do but lift our hands and pray? And we look forward. We look forward to the time when we come out of the grave and our sin stays there. When we are made perfect. Just as Christ is perfect. God bless us as we entrust ourselves to your perfect grace. Hearing the message of hope to leave sin behind, to follow after righteousness in the hope that one day through Christ we will leave sin all the way behind. That as we try to bludgeon the head of ugly sin, Christ has crushed the head. And so we look forward in hope when we live as citizens in the kingdom of the great king and see him face to face. We pray in that king's name.